0: Chief Justice, please the court.
1: Your income
2: tax. Income tax? Yes, your income tax. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. We're making this podcast in April of 2014. It's the start of spring and it's tax season. America's tax system is really, really complicated. Every time you do your taxes, you're answering to multiple jurisdictions and all their laws about what you owe for what and why. Today on Life of the Law, we're taking a look at how our tax system got so complicated and how our attitudes about paying taxes have changed over the years. But first, Elisa Roth has a story about a surprising group of taxpayers who live outside the law. Three days after Clara Orozco arrived in
3: New York, she found a job waiting tables. Since then, she's been a cashier at McDonald's, painted nails, and cleaned houses. And every year, whether she's been paid by check or cash, on the books or off, Orozco has filed her taxes. A friend told me, you have to pay your taxes, she said, so that one day you can become a citizen, or at least get a green card. That was in 2002. Since then, Orozco married an American citizen, had two American children, and paid she doesn't know how much in taxes. That's Kurt, her three-year-old son, who keeps coming in while we're talking. I will. I've been paying taxes for 12 years, she says, but I don't see any benefit because I'm still illegal. Fox News alert, alarming new details about the financial toll of illegal immigration on the local level. People who are against immigration often say undocumented workers take more out of the American system than they put in. Shelled out $600 million last year on welfare services and benefits for the children of illegal immigrants. It's hard to quantify, but it may well not be true. Matt Gardner is executive director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, which is a nonpartisan research organization in Washington, D.C. And last year, his group tried to get a handle on how many undocumented immigrants pay taxes.
4: The best estimate is that roughly half of undocumented taxpayers, one way or another, are paying into the system right
0: now having income taxes withheld.
3: That translates to more than a billion dollars in income tax. The study also found that immigration reform would bring in more taxes because immigrants would earn more, Gardner says, and more people would pay taxes.
4: The emphasis should be not on preventing undocumented taxpayers from from receiving these, these basic services, but on allowing them to fully participate in the tax system the way everybody else does.
3: Even though she pays taxes, Clara Orozco doesn't get a lot of benefits that she might if she were documented. She can't get the earned income tax credit, which low income families are eligible for. She doesn't get Medicaid. And bureaucratically speaking, she doesn't really exist. Orozco has no American driver's license. Her name isn't on her lease, the electric bill, or the cell phone contract. But the US government lets her pay taxes, just like everybody else. Orozco remembers when she got hired at McDonald's. They asked for her social security number. It was easy to get a fake card. Orozco says McDonald's withheld a lot of money from her paycheck. I think they took out more than I took home, she says. I was only getting about $100 a week. But she doesn't pay taxes using her fake social security number. She doesn't have to. The IRS came up with a way for undocumented taxpayers and other people who don't have social security numbers to file. It's called an Individual Taxpayer Identification Number, or ITIN. And with very few exceptions, the IRS won't turn that information over to immigration authorities.
1: With the Americano. ITIN,
3: Orozco can even file jointly with her husband, who, as an American citizen, has a regular Social Security number. And she can deduct her U.S. citizen children. <sighs> Sam Rock is an accountant and attorney who specializes in tax issues for low-income immigrants. He says the IRS will even merge a W-2 that uses a fake Social Security number with the ITIN tax return. And the IRS will process it as if the, name, on the and name and number on the W-2 were, you know, the same as that were on the 1040. And so when you file these returns electronically, there's actually a little box that says, which number did you work on? If your number is different than your ITIN, what's the number that you work under? And if you're paid in cash, you can just use your ITIN to file like a freelancer does. Sam Rock says the IRS tries to make it simple because the law says that just about everybody has to pay income taxes. The fact that you're undocumented and you make cash, and you may work with a false social security number, doesn't relieve you of the obligation to file tax because, or a tax return. Because if you owe that tax, then the government wants it. Clara Orozco feels it all adds up to something like taxation without representation.
1: Más mal estamos somos nosotros los ilegales.
3: We undocumented immigrants don't have a voice, she says, and we don't have a vote, but we're behind every restaurant, every business, and it's not fair. I think about not paying taxes sometimes, she says, but then I think about if I don't pay, and there's immigration reform someday. This is the only proof I have that I've been here for 12 years. For life of the law... I'm
2: Elisa Roth. Undocumented taxpayers obviously make up just a fraction of the people who pay taxes in the U.S. But even for citizens, the tax system is fraught and complicated. Here at Life of the Law, we wanted to get to the bottom of how it got that way and how that complexity affects our attitudes towards taxes. One of our new advisors, Ajay Marotrap, is a tax historian and a professor at Indiana University School of Law. He invited some of his fellow tax nerds to talk about taxation and citizenship.
0: Uh, hello, my name is Ajay Marotra.
4: I teach tax law and legal history. I'm Larry Zelenak. I teach tax law at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina.
1: Uh, my name is Molly Mitchell-Moore. I teach American history at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia.
5: And I'm Beth Pearson. I'm a PhD candidate in sociology out at UC Berkeley, and I'm really glad to be joining from the West Coast today.
0: Terrific. Today, most people, I think, believe that Americans hate taxes. There's this general sense in our political culture and our political discourse that Americans don't like to pay taxes. And a presumption behind that is often that Americans have always and everywhere Hated paying taxes, and I thought we might investigate that. Truth to that myth.
4: I think it's worse now than than it has been at some times in the past. One of the the high water marks of Americans being happy enough, by and large, to pay taxes was during World War II and and the postwar period through, say, the the early 1960s. One of the themes you find both on radio and television. From the 40s through the 60s, is, is, is very much the Holmesian theme of, of taxes as the price of civilization.
1: Your income tax. Income tax? Yes, your income tax.
0: Yeah.
1: It may not seem important to you, but it is important.
0: What?
1: Yes, and it's your privilege. Not just and this, of course, is beauty, the most famous example: selling the mass income tax during World and War and II, using popular oh, entertainment what, figures, what, right? What, right? Donald Duck filling out his income tax form for the first time, claiming Huey, Dewey, and Louie as his income? dependents, uh, or Donald Duck, you know, being convinced by Scrooge McDuck, his country uncle, country that he needs to pa- pay his taxes, taxes to beat the Axis, to pay his taxes for victory.
2: for democracy. Taxes to, beat the axis. I'm taxes to beat the axis. That's the spirit. Yes,
4: sir. Maybe that was a golden age and maybe it's not realistic to expect we can get back to that again, but if if the only way to get back to those attitudes is to get back to a situation where we feel like the country is is in um uh, really dire straits, maybe we just have to accept that that we're, we're lucky if the country isn't in dire straits and maybe when it isn't. People just aren't going to be as happy about pay, paying taxes or see the link between taxes and patriotism.
0: There used to be a time when when policymakers could identify the direct benefits that came from paying taxes, so what the spending was going to be used for. And so there seems to be have been a, a more direct connection between raising revenue and spending. And I wonder if that kind of direct connection is sort of dissolved or if policymakers have let go of that
4: over time.
0: Is that one possible reason for why we've had these changing attitudes?
4: One theory that I've seen advanced by some, I think, political scientists mostly, is the war on poverty and, and the, the great society in, in the 60s. Uh, for a lot of people, fundamentally changed their view of how the, gov- the federal government spends money from before then they largely thought, well, the federal government is spending my tax dollars to provide benefits to me and to people like me. And, and an awful lot of people after uh, the Johnson administration flipped their view and, and said, no, I, I think the federal government is spending money mostly for people who aren't like me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Lawrence is, is right in a way there, right? I mean, in the 1960s, liberals fight this very visible War on poverty. Uh, And for many people, it looked as if tax dollars were flowing from us, right, to them. Um, But underneath that is a sort of history of the federal government spending tax dollars in invisible ways. Um, So most of the white middle class by the 1960s benefits not from direct spending programs or not from programs that look like direct spending, uh, but from tax subsidies, right? The mortgage interest tax deduction is a huge one. the deduction that employers get for providing health insurance. So a lot of the stuff that was being at least underwritten by tax dollars feels like it's coming from the private market, feels like it's coming from businesses rather than from the state. So it doesn't feel like you're getting a good deal for your tax dollars. You're not getting much bang for your buck. Even though this is wrong, right? This is a perception question rather than an actual question.
4: That's that's an interesting argument for reversing the current practice of putting most of or at least an awful lot of the federal benefits for the middle class in the tax code in the form of tax expenditures because people then don't view it as government spending and, and think that they're not getting any benefits from government spending.
0: Larry, can you elaborate on what a tax expenditure is just so we are all on the same page?
4: Sure. Well, it, it, the basic idea, and this was uh, sort of uh, invented in terms, in conceptual terms, although Congress had been doing it before anyone had a label for it, uh, back in the 60s by uh, a Harvard law professor who was also high up in the Johnson administration by the name of Stanley Surrey. Uh, his his basic notion was that um, if, if the government wants to subsidize, well, to take a, an example that, that we've already been talking about, uh, home ownership. Um, one way of um, subsidizing homeownership would be to, um, for the government to directly to pay uh, part of the mortgage interest for everybody who buys a home with borrowed money. That would be a direct expenditure. But, of course, that's not what we do. Instead, we say give a tax break. Uh, in the form of the home mortgage interest deduction to people who buy their home with borrowed money. And uh, it, it reduces your tax. So instead of paying more tax and then getting a check back from the government, you simply pay less tax to begin with. The the economic effect is the same, uh, but it's it's a subsidy that's sort of hidden in the tax system.
0: And so... Both both Molly and Larry have mentioned these uh, sort of invisible benefits, these tax expenditures or tax benefits that are embedded in the code. And these, of course, have proliferated over time. And so it's not just individual or middle-class homeowners, but there's a whole host of these things uh, buried in our tax code. And that is often pointed to as one of the reasons for the complexity of our tax code. And so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about both at the national and at the at the state and local level, how complex our tax system has become over time, and what some of the causes and consequences of that complexity might be.
5: When you're filling out your tax form, if if you still do that, if you're one of the Donald Ducks out there who sits down in April to uh, calculate with a pencil, uh, it's it's really unclear, I think, sometimes what these numbers mean, what you're getting a credit for, a deduction, an exemption. And I think for most Americans, the difference between even those terms um, is a little meaningless. I mean, it's become a maze that was designed by policymakers. And in many cases, you know, these exemptions and credits and deductions have been sought by individuals, by groups um, in order to sort of carve out their niche within the tax code.
4: I have recently run across the figure of the, the total page count of the Internal Revenue Code and the regulations interpreting it at about 70,000. Now, uh, of course, most of those pages are irrelevant to the average middle-class taxpayer filing his or her return. There, there are rules which are really quite arithmetically complex that apply to lower income and middle income taxpayers, like the very complicated rules for the earned income tax credit. And and a lot of middle class tax benefits are subject to um, very complicated phase in and phase out rules and percentage of income floors and ceilings and so on. And, uh, you know, at one level, the computational complexity doesn't matter so much because 90% of tax returns are being done with the aid of software, either, you know, H&R Block or some other preparer or people using TurboTax on their own, but it still makes the um, the system a black box where people put in numbers and into the into the computer and the computer spits out this is your tax liability, uh, but people have no idea where that where that tax liability came from, what was going on inside the box. And and I think that that, that creates a, a real problem of democratic legitimacy. I mean, the, the taxation without comprehension is as inimical to democracy as taxation without representation, and we're very far down the road to taxation without comprehension in the income tax right now.
0: Certainly as tax laws and rules become more complex and more opaque, there is issues of fairness. And so I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how distributional issues tie into complexity the notion. And this, Larry, for example, I know you've done, um, you mentioned some of uh, the radio and TV sitcoms um, that you've looked at. And examples, I can recall that um, a Roseanne episode that was done a while back that sort of captured this notion of the distributional unfairness that came from the complexity and the opaqueness of the tax code.
4: We have detailed instruction books which can be easily understood by people with at least an eighth grade education. But of course, we have to rely on cooperative citizens such as yourselves taking the time to read them.
1: No, see, I did read this book, and there's nothing in here about no 1099. You show me, versus anything in there about a 1099.
4: Page 34.
1: Well, that's the one page I (laughs) skipped.
4: Basically, what, what happens in this episode is that on April 15th, uh, Dan and Roseanne are trying to, at the last minute, prepare their their tax return, and um, they, they, they can't find the um, 1099 information reporting for $400 that Roseanne earned uh, selling magazine subscriptions, and it becomes clear that if they've just lost it, but they received it, they're going to report Um, because they'll assume the IRS knows about it. But if they never got the 1099 because they weren't supposed to get a 1099 for that amount of money, then they're just going to cheat and not report it. But eventually they find out that that the, the magic number is 600 to get a ten hundred ninety nine so they didn 't have one but uh, but in the course of this with everybody else at the IRS office functioning as kind of all the other taxpayers functioning as kind of a Greek chorus, Roseanne yeah. gives this yeah, kind yeah, of amazing they're just,
1: they're just uh, this amazing speech no human being can really understand these things you know that 's why you've got to go get some two hundred dollars an hour lawyer and even explain the crap to you you know and i can 't afford two hundred dollars an hour
0: yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. I mean us people the poor people and Us regular people, we're paying more taxes than the rich people because they got all the lawyers to figure out the loopholes. I want to find loopholes. I mean, we give you our money, and then you like totally mismanage it worse than we ever could anyhow.
4: That episode is is, is a really kind of uh, uh, amazing dramatization of the collapse of taxpayer morale.
1: In my research, I began to see this kind of discourse about the unfair tax code uh, beginning to emerge at the end of the 1960s. So as the American economy begins to collapse, uh, as the Democratic coalition that had survived from Franklin Roosevelt's election in 1932 begins to fall apart over civil rights and over Vietnam, uh, you see the beginnings of a kind of tax revolt. And this tax revolt eventually turns right Uh, by the end of the 1970s. But in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it really is a kind of progressive tax revolt. It's led by leaders of the welfare rights organizations, for example. Uh, And they're very much fixated on or focused on finding the ways in which the tax code is tilted to the benefits of the wealthy.
5: When Texas was debating whether they should adopt the sales tax in the early 1960s, they had a governor who said instead we should tax the gas pipeline companies and the interstate uh, trade in oil and gas. And you know, I've been reading the letters that people wrote in to him when this debate was going on and they said, kick the lobbyists out of the state capitol. We want to tax the gas companies. No sales tax. That's going to hurt the poor. And to think that, you know, this is, again, a relatively recent debate that was had about taxes where the conversation about what was fair for the individual taxpayer and who should bear these burdens of a civilized society were different. Um, And I actually read that in a very kind of optimistic way because it signals to me that it's possible to have these shifts in how we think about what a fair tax code looks like. Um, And, you know, we've been debating, of course, whether we whether we think such a shift now is more or less likely. But I think when you look at it from a historical perspective, you, you do see these things like Molly is mentioning where um, the debate went in a different tone and, and fairness was thought about differently relatively recently.
0: I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what the possible current reforms might be at different levels of government with regards to taxation. Any optimism out there?
4: There's been a lot of talk for actually for a couple of decades now about, you know, some radical replacement for the income tax. Uh, Bill Archer used to talk about, uh, former Ways and Means Committee chairman, used to talk about uh, tearing the income tax out by its roots and throwing it overboard, which I thought was a bit of a mixed metaphor unless you're growing stuff on a boat. But um, <laughs> you don't really hear as much about that anymore, and I don't think anybody – thinks that that the income tax is going away. Uh, there have been some proposals, including by uh, Chairman Camp of the Ways and Means Committee just recently, uh, for some pretty substantial simplification of the income tax. And uh, without endorsing everything in the Camp proposal, I do think that, that simplification is way overdue and, and well worth thinking about. And nobody's really talking about... Uh, Tax cuts anymore. I mean, the 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 Camp proposal, which is a Republican proposal, of course, uh, is aimed at being roughly revenue neutral, raising just about as much revenue as the current income tax.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Camp proposal is interesting in part because I can't quite figure out where it came from, except out of you know this general sense that uh, the tax code is too complex, that simplification would be good. Uh, but clearly, it is at least for now, right, dead on arrival. Wall Street has. Uh, raised its opposition to it. Uh, in part, I think because of this revenue neutrality, right, it doesn't cut taxes overall. Uh, and so I'm not sure that this sense, uh, I'm, I guess maybe I don't agree with Larry, that tax cuts are off the table. Uh, I think that in part the GOP is still really dominated by tax cut politics, and it's going to take a while uh, to move beyond that, even uh, given this interest in um, sort of long-term deficits and reducing the deficit.
5: Well, I'll chime in on the state perspective, which, as I'm sure we all recall, about a year ago, there was a lot of talk about certain states led by some of these GOP hopefuls or rising stars uh, abolishing the, in- the state income tax. Um, and interestingly, uh, that didn't really go anywhere either, um, because those plans were also, for the most part, revenue neutral. And I think that, was an interesting experience for some of those folks that proposed that, that, re, that elimination of the income tax because it generated a little bit more resistance from some traditional allies than I think was expected, um, from business in particular. Once these taxes are in place, they're quite sticky, and for better or worse, it's hard to get rid of them um, and to enact any sort of really radical reform.
0: Well, our time has come to an end. I just want to thank uh, all of our participants for a very lively and, and interesting discussion. And uh, th- thank you all for making the time.
2: That was Indiana University Law Professor Ajay Marotra with Lawrence Zelenak of Duke University, Molly Mitchellmore of Washington and Lee University, and Beth Pearson, a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Berkeley. You can find links to their many books and articles about taxes and tax history at our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Life of the Law is produced by Mary Adkins, Katie Barnett, Julia Barton, Shannon Heffernan, Caitlin Prest, Elisa Roth, Simone Seaver, Julian Weinberger, and Phil Wilt. Our music is by Matthew Darr, Kyle Kaplan, and Todd McDonald. Our funding comes from you, our listeners, and from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbink. Thanks also to the International Media Project, our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. For more on this story and others on the law and the legal system, or to donate to Life of the Law, visit lifeofthelaw.org.